Just Christians, live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Schmidt and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, and welcome to We Are Just Christians. Thanks so much for tuning in today. We really appreciate it. Hope you stay with us for the next hour or so. We'll be on the air at 10 o'clock Eastern Time here. We Are Just Christians is a live call-in show, and we invite your participation in the show, as we always do. To be gone out of town or something. My name is Mike Schmidt. I'm uh, when we're not having technical difficulties. Right. We had a lot of technical difficulties last week, for which we apologize. I hope we got that worked out. It's one of those deals, like sometimes, where you just kind of bang on a TV set and it works, and you never know what was wrong. That's kind of what happened last week. So, uh, fixing the problem. But in any event, my name is Mike Schmidt. I'm the preacher, one of the elders here at the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard, and. My partner, as usual, is Gary Jones. How you doing, Gary? I'm doing well this nice, cool Good. morning. Yeah, it's pretty cold. I was up in North Florida recently, and boy, it was really cold up there. So, in any event, um, we appreciate you being here, and I'm going to give you the numbers so you can get in touch with us here on the show. We'd love to have your comments and feedback, phone calls, texts. You can reach us live here in Port St. Lucie at 772 340 1590. 772-340-1590 is the usual call-in number for WPSL. That's our number this morning. Give us a call, and here are some of the ground rules, just so you know. Some people are afraid to call in, but I don't want you to be afraid to call in because it will not be an unpleasant experience. We, are, uh, we want to hear what you have to say, good, bad, or ugly, whatever it might be, your comments, or if you have a question, maybe something's come up in your life or in what you've heard or on the news or something about religion or spiritual things. A problem that you're dealing with, you'd like to know what the Bible says about it, we'd be glad to talk with you about that. If we agree, great. If we don't agree, that'll be okay too. And we'd like you to have a conversation with you about that. We promise not to in any way berate or bait you on anything. We're here for a conversation. We promise we're going to give you the last word on any discussion that we have so you can feel free to call in and make your comments. Some people call in and then they just want to listen off the air. That's okay too. I like to have a conversation, though, because sometimes we don't maybe get the gist of your question. Uh, so it's, it's easy to not get exactly what someone is trying to, to, uh, to say, isn't it, Gary? So you, you yes, know, it's sir. nice to be able to clarify it. But you can reach us, 772-340-1590 is the call-in number for We Are Just Christians. You can also reach us by text. Gary and I both have text numbers that we monitor not only during the show, but also during the week. So if you'd like to text us, you can text Mike at 772-260-6120, 772-260-6120, and you can text Gary at 772-260-6220, is his number. So if you want to text us, that'd be great. We'll try to respond during the show if we can in some fashion. Or we'll respond, maybe we have to, we'll respond during the week. That would be great. Or if you think of something during the week you want to discuss on the show or whatever, just feel free to text us. That's not a problem at all. Or something you want us to discuss. Yes, that's right. It works all anyway. Oh, great subject. If you have a subject in mind, that would be wonderful because uh, we'd like to talk about what what the audience wants to talk about from the the Bible, from from a spiritual angle. We also have an email that we monitor, justchristians at att.net, justchristians at att.net is the email, and we'll read those. We've, we've had several people that email us. We like that. We can, we can go a little more detail sometimes. We have a chance to think about it. So just Christians at att.net. 
Well, last week, Gary, we started a subject that you had brought up, but we had so much technical difficulty, I'm pretty sure most of our listeners didn't really get very much out of the show. Uh, at least we can't, well, we can't tell for sure because we're not sure the difference between what was on the air and what's not. It's hard for us to tell sometimes that we weren't even on the air at times or it was so digitally glitchy that it was, uh, I'm sure people just turned the station, you know, I don't know. I shouldn't say that, but probably so many people did. So if you want to give us the gist of what you were talking about, well, I, we'll I hate, to go on that. And yeah, kind of, I know. hate to keep going over the same thing over and over again, but you're right, Mike. Between the technical difficulties and the intervening week, uh, I just have to start over. Yeah, to yeah. some degree, I understand. And, and so, I started out with a question, and that question is, "What does God do when you believe? What does God do? Does He do anything, or?" Basically, does it all depend on you? And the reason that question came up is, is Mike, I've met people that uh, believe that the instant you men- mentally acknowledge God as, as a believer, that you, you are saved. Uh, I'm not sure that's what all the denominations teach, but I, I've met people that, you know, basically in talking to me, have that position. Well, that's certainly how it's presented in a lot of places, even from reputable supposedly reputable teachers is that's what's presented that the instant that you believe then everything is right per, 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 and you never can be lost from that point on not only are you saved instantly right there by mental agreement but you're you can never be lost from that point on so uh, is the question always is is that what the bible says about that exactly and, and that's what you're going to talk about I'm and sure. that's what i was going to talk about because there's a there's a verse in in john that is, you know, in my experience, Mike, this, is, this verse is almost never talked about. This, this is John 1 and 12, verse 12. And I'm going to go back and start reading it at uh, verse 11 and maybe even continue through verse 13 to, to put a little bit of context with it. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning verse 11, it says, Talking of Jesus, it says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Now, I ended at verse 12, but that doesn't seem to me like it's indicating that the moment you believe, you become a child of God. It says he he gave you the right to become a child of God. And we talked a little bit about what that Greek word translated right here in the new king james uh means and it basically it's to have it's to give somebody the ability it's tell them they have the capacity or the freedom to do something it's a it's a basically if i understand the definition in strong's correctly it's it's a token of handing over a certain amount of control over what you do to you yes the ability or strength (coughs) ability or strength to do something Yes. He says the ability, the capacity, yes. the, the freedom to do something, uh, you know, power or right. And I think the uh, American standard does translate it power, not right. Is that correct? That's uh, correct. Sometimes it's power. Sometimes it's the word right. It's, it's the word. There are two words for power or this same word in Greek. One is dunamis, or if I'm, I'm not a Greek scholar, but... It's, it's, we get the word dynamite from that. It means power. So Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, or all power has been given to me. Then there's this word, which has more of the idea of, of right. Or uh, ability. Or ability. And it, it's exousia. 
So it's something that comes from you, as it were. Or the control. You, you, you have the control. But it is interesting. He doesn't just say he made them sons of God. That's not what no. the text says. Now, and why is that? Why does the text say that? Well, that's what you have to try to examine. Yeah, that's what we're trying to examine. What 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 is he really saying here? And And the other thing is, how is that consistent with other passages that we read? That some people take as, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I think John 3.16 is, is not very well understood in many ways, at least by some. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There only uh, mentions a belief, and I think many take that as mental acknowledgment. That's and, not what it means there. And that's not what it means there because one of the first things that I think we need to reconcile with this passage in John, one, basically of having the right to become a child of God. Now, what does it mean to become a child of God or become children of God? I'm taking this to mean that you are saved, you are sanctified, you are basically brought into a relationship with God. There's a lot of ways the Bible expresses that, that change, that relationship at that point. Yes. Now, the other thing about it, Gary, and maybe in a more broad sense, if I understand what you're saying, is that um, most, a lot of Protestant people will not acknowledge the statement I'm going to make, that in the matter of salvation from sin, God has a part or role that he plays in that and man has a role or part that he plays in that well this implies that yes this this verse implies that exactly nothing can nothing on man's part nothing man could do by himself could ever bring about reconciliation or salvation and that's the point that we all agree on god had to had to initiate the process of salvation and by his grace and mercy it, he, that's why he did that, initiated this process. But he implies in this verse that once God has done his part of sending his son into the world, which is the context of John 1, right. then, then we, he gave those who believe in him the right to become sons of God. The ability. And, and, they, and so that implies that they have a They have now something to answer. They have with. a choice in this matter. They can believe or not believe. They can respond to, the, to this or not respond to this. And so anyway... It doesn't say there that believing saves you in that case. And, and even if it did, it doesn't say believe only, faith only saves, saves you. you. Anyway, go ahead. I'm well, and, and one of the things that I would bring up is, is I, I would like to go back to Hebrews 5 and, and around verse 9. He says, talking of, speaking of the Hebrew writer, speaking of Jesus, says, and having been perfected, speaking of Jesus, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Mm-hmm. So obedience is is the answer. In other words, the way I'm looking at this and the way I'd like for people to think about this is at least consider the fact that when you mentally acknowledge God as the creator and the one who can save us or make us his children, the answer that we have to that should be obedience to his will, to what he's told us to do. Now, then the question comes up, well, obedience to what? What, what are we to obey? What, what goes on? And, and you brought up this question that uh, basically people, you know, faith only. Uh, and, and some of the things that I've heard people say, basically, 
that there's nothing you can do. In other words, there's nothing required of you to do. There's no condition that you need to meet. And and I just don't see that in Scripture. I don't I don't have that understanding. But one of the passages that's often you know pointed to in that respect is I believe is in Ephesians two. Uh, in Ephesians two, he says, "For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves." It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. They like to point that uh, not of works phrase and say, there's nothing you do. Well, and, and, and that it may mean that sort of like that in that verse. There's nothing man, I said a moment ago, nothing. of his own volition by himself without God's first having done what he did. There's that nothing man could that, ever do to save himself. There's nothing that that man can do on his own that earns right. salvation. That would never can, obligate God to save you. can't obligate God to save you. Now, I think I'm going to chase a rabbit here for just a second. Maybe you agree with this, maybe you don't. But I would like to go to Luke 17 for just a minute. Uh, Jesus was telling a parable to, I believe, to his disciples. And beginning in verse 17, 7 of Luke 17, He says, and which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down and eat. But you will not rather, but will you not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Now, that that was a puzzling uh, parable to me for a long time. But I think it is related to the Ephesians passage, the Ephesians 2 passage. He's basically saying we, we, we are his bondservants. That's something people don't like to admit. We are bought and paid for bond servants to Jesus Christ if we wish to be with God. Voluntarily, to be sure, but still bought and paid for. Uh, we are unprofitable doing only what is our duty to do. In other words, we don't really earn salvation. Can't, possibly, what we do. can't possibly earn it. All we can do is, is obey. All now, can, now that all, we, we realize we our, our need and acknowledge Christ as the Savior then we are going to obey him. Exactly. Those who imply that he, he, he we are can expected, save you and you won't obey him. I mean, it's We it's are expected to obey. That's all that there is. Right. And so the question then becomes, what conditions does God place upon salvation to those who believe? Are there any conditions? And, of course, some would say, no, salvation's unconditional. Well, it's obviously as one condition of belief. So the question is, you know, what are the conditions? Well, we can go read some of those maybe later, but go ahead. I don't want, I'm getting well, sidetracked. Well, no, no, we're, we're going right into where I wanted to go because there are things that we need to obey that he has given us. Uh, his, grace, his grace is conditional. Right. His favor is conditional. Um, and one of the conditions is, and I think it's a concept that, that I would like to introduce before we look at some of the specific things, is... He says in James chapter 2, 
But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. God desires to see our faith. And that's what he's looking at. When we do things, when we do what we're commanded, when we do the things that he has asked us to do, he sees faith in us. And and that brings us into a relationship of grace. Uh, He goes on in James 2 and says in verse 24, You see then that a man is justified by his works and not by faith only. Because God simply wants to see that faith. And I think we last week we even mentioned Abraham when he was offering Isaac uh, on the altar. God said, when he was ready to offer it, God said, now I know. He wanted to see what Abraham would do. Yes, which, which of course undercuts so many other doctrines like God made everything happen the way it is and it can't be any other way. Every action that happens is God has already foreordained it to be exactly that way. That passage makes no sense in that context. Well, you're saying God, God, right. God, had, God has, does not make us choose. God does not force us into choices that we would not ordinarily make. He gives us the choice. And that's part of the, that's another implication of the passage. He gave us the right to become children of God. Yes. It also has the implication of free will behind that, that we have a free will choice. We, we can make that choice either to the affirmative or not. Um, even, even the, and especially, so you mentioned, well, what are the conditions that God places upon us for salvation or justification or basically sanctification, which in, in its, in its real definition, it just means that, that we will avoid God's wrath in the judgment. That's what that means. Yeah, yeah there's, 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 there's several ways differences, but, but that's essentially what it yeah, means. That's, that's essentially right. what it means. Uh, and one of the things that I would say with well, the first thing is one of the things mentioned in that chapter, that's belief. That's mental acknowledgement. That has to come first. There is no other way that that will work. Right. Uh, someone who does not believe is certainly not going to act upon the things that God tells yeah, them If they to don't do. believe that Jesus is God's son, they're not really going to over time act upon him and obey his will. So. Yeah, and, and there's there's a passage we'll look at that that actually states that in another form but but mental acknowledgement is the first thing that has to happen and uh basically john three sixteen is one of those passages that i believe is an affirmation of that is the first thing that has to happen of course I, the belief in that passage probably implies much more the passage is translated should not perish which I think when we look at it is properly translated what most people quote it as will not perish, which is not the same thing. Uh, Should not perish implies that, again, there are conditions to this, not that it's unconditional. But that's a very broad stroke kind of passage. And John is full of those kind of verses. And when you try to take the broad stroke and then ignore the specifics that are found in other passages... Mm -hmm. You're not being an accurate interpreter of the Bible at all. Well, that's one of the that's one of the Bible study methods that I think you and I have talked about. Is we have to make all the passages that we look look to in terms of mentioning belief or acknowledgement or obedience. We have to harmonize them. Well, a, have a, a broad statement logically can never, of itself, uh, negate a, a more specific right. passage, such as James two. Right. So we we see those things. So basically, 
once we believe, what are some of the things? And, and maybe the, there's not a specific order here, but I think there is in some repentance. Uh, basically is one of the next things that I suspect logically God asks us to do. He says repent. And I'd, I'd like to go to Luke 13, uh, verses 3 through 5. Jesus says, I tell you, know that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. For those 18 upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do, they, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So the question is, what, what does he mean by repent, Mike? That's, that's the thing that we see. And, and basically going back to the Greek lexicon again, the word translated repent there means basically to change your mind, to change your thought process. To change in how you look at your life, uh, actually to turn around. In in some cases, it's it's used in in that respect. So, what Jesus is saying that we need to do is we need to alter our behavior to conform to what He desires. That's what obedience is, and that's what obedience is. That's that's repentance. Now, it, it's very hard to see repentance. So one of the other things that comes up... At least in the first stage of repentance, of feeling sorrow. Sorry for yourself. Yeah. Uh, basically that... But as we go on through this, we're going to see that repentance is going to show up in the things that we are asked to do. And there are some things that are asked to do beyond this. And one of them is confession. Jesus says in Luke 12... Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will confess before the angel of God but he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God now to me that's pretty clear that's both a positive and a negative statement about confessing right. Jesus before men okay that's that's right here so men can see it and hear it in some fashion now if you're if you're unable to speak you can confess with sign language I would think but there are ways for people to confess before men that may not involve speaking, but I believe that that confession before men is still necessary. It'll still be speech in some in some form. form. Now, we're, we probably should come back to this, Gary, because we have a call on the, on the line. Okay. Um, are you there, Ken? Yeah, Mike. How you guys doing? Good. Speak up pretty loud for us. Okay. Uh, yeah, I actually want to talk about the same thing. Um, I had an interesting experience. Okay, um, I heard some. I heard a um, preacher who was a Calvinist uh, preaching on the subject justification by uh, faith alone, and uh, I was. I was listening because I was curious to hear what he was going to say. And I was quite surprised because he actually disagreed with it. <laughs> and he said it was not by faith alone. A Calvinist said that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, I got a verse I think illustrates this. It's the scripture about the woman who committed, uh, was brought to Jesus who committed adultery. Okay. John 9, is that, what that, is that where that is? It's, uh, first of all, let me, let me say something 
about this before we get to that scripture. Growing up in the church, I grew up in a congregational church, which is basically Calvinist. And under that preaching, I could tell there was something wrong with it. And then later, I went to a Baptist church. And again, I could tell there was something wrong with it. And it's funny, because now I realize they both had different mistakes, but the result was the same. Calvinists believe, you know, if you have faith, that's it. That's all you need. You have, don't have to do anything else. And they believe God gives you the faith. We're teaching that as long as you're baptized, that's it. You don't have to do anything else. <laughs> and the result is the same. And it's an error. Well, the, the two so, things happen. One says God does everything. Other people say man does everything, essentially. They're both wrong. Yeah. Right. But the result is we don't have, they, they, they say we don't have to do anything. It's all, it's all you know, we were baptized and that's it, we're saved, and it doesn't matter what we do afterwards. That's not true. Right. Well, I uh, approach it from the standpoint of saying, uh, whenever you put the word only on something, you, you're walking on kind of dangerous ground because very few things are only. And I think it's completely logically inconsistent. I hear this all the time. I know that the, uh, for example, that some of the, uh, um, I'm going to call them uh, strong Calvinists, but what's the word? Um, I can't think of what it is. Evangelicals. Some of the evangelical people will say we're saved by grace alone and we're saved by faith alone. Now, that's logically impossible, okay, for that to be true, unless you do some pretty serious divvying up of definitions, which might wouldn't hold up to scriptural analysis. My problem with saying faith only is that that phrase is only found once in the Bible where it says we're not saved by faith only in James 2.24 that Gary just read. Yes. And, then when you, and then when you go and talk, when you go to Romans chapter 10, uh, you see Paul there saying that uh, in verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. And that was the next verse I was going yeah, to read. Yeah, I thought you were going there. you got two things that it's saying there. And he says, the heart you believe, believe, that's faith, unto righteousness. But with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. Now, you can't say something with your mouth and that not be a physical act that you do. Here is, here is Paul saying a human can do something that leads to salvation, which is confess. But now a true Calvinist will, does not believe in confession because I've dealt with them. I mean, they, they will even attack people like Baptists who say you should pray to say a prayer because that's doing something. So which is it, folks? You know, which, which is it? And Gary and I's point is, why don't we take the Scriptures and find out all that it says about how to be saved in the New Testament? Put them together, and, and they fit together perfectly. And then you'll know how to be saved from the New Testament. Rather than making a, a creedal statement that we're saved by faith alone and by grace alone through the Scriptures alone, you know, so make all these alone statements. Uh, that's a creed. That's not what this, that's not taken from the Scripture, as it were. That's a philosophy. A ph yes. Uh, Ken, uh, 
you might want to say more about this. Speak up a little bit so I can hear you again. Yeah, uh, uh, going back to that scripture I'm talking about in John, John chapter uh, is it seven or eight, yeah, eight, uh, with a, a woman caught in adultery. Yeah. After the after the accusers leave, Jesus says to the woman, "Where are your accusers? Does no man accuse thee?" And the woman says, "No man, Lord." And then Jesus said, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. So she had to go and sin no more. Right. Which is something she could do, right? Right. In other words, tell her, well, now that you believed in me and called me Lord, you're saved. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so she had some measure of control or or. Uh, choice in whether she sinned again and Jesus was you know telling her that in this case yeah the other thing you, the other thing you point I, you point out here which a lot of people miss is she was guilty yes Jesus called her a sinner maybe she wasn't that particular sin but she was sin what's the last thing you said Ken I said maybe she was not guilty of the particular sin they were accusing her of, but she was guilty, according to what Jesus said. She was guilty of some sin, whether he was, yeah, even whether he was speaking only of the sin she had been committing and committing adultery. We don't know that part, but we do know he told her to stop sinning, which is consistent with what the apostles taught after his resurrection in the Gospels. Stop sinning to be saved. And if you keep sinning, you'll be lost. And, of course, a true Calvinist doesn't believe that you can be lost. So these, well, just a simple reading of these scriptures yeah, puts I'll, a knife in all of these kinds of doctrines about faith only and belief only and once you're saved, you're always saved. It just puts a knife at all of those if you want to look at it that way. Well, basically, we've, we've talked about things in the gospel, Mike, that, that God gives us conditions or commands to do. And yet, it doesn't end there. And one of the passages I think you were talking about, Romans 11, is where is where I was going. Is basically Romans 11:22. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness. If you continue in His goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Right. The implication is if you don't continue in doing what God wants you to do, you're going to be cut off. You're right. going to be severed. And and does he seem to imply that you have a choice in that matter? You do. You have yeah, a choice you, whether you, you continue. continue or and not. you better continue or you'll be cut off. So the idea that once you're saved, you're, uh, well, is, you're, you're never going to be lost and, and you have no choice in the matter and God gives you the faith and, and uh, it's all done. And once you're saved... Uh, by saying, I believe that there's nothing left for you to do because God does everything. Uh, that All those things are... Um, all those things are... Uh, what am I trying to say? Are, are, are human inventions and, and uh, theological statements. Doctrine, not, doctrines not, of men. Doctrines of men. Not taken from the text of the Scripture, per se, in an attempt to understand it. Someone just reminded me of a joke I heard, if I can even tell it right about this incident of uh, Jesus and the woman at the well you know 
where, and it's a Catholic joke. I forgot who told me. It's a Catholic friend of mine. You know, they teach that Mary was without sin and so forth. So here's Jesus, and he tells this woman, uh, where are your accusers, Lord? Uh, and, and he said, no. And, and what he tells the people, first he says, let he who is uh, without, without sin. sin among you cast the first stone. About that time, a big old rock comes flying in and cracks a woman in the head. And Jesus says, Mother, I can't take you anywhere, can I? <laughs> so here's Mary. Mary must have been in the crowd. I didn't tell it right, but you get the gist of the joke. Um, kind of, of course, the Catholics have made, if you know, kind of get aside just a little bit here. Uh, Catholics have turned that story into Jesus takes up the stones and kills her himself. That's the new version in the Catholic. Uh, not Catholic. Oh, uh, pardon me. I just said that all wrong. Chinese. The Chinese, the Chinese, and of course the Chinese and the Catholic Church are trying to work out how they're going to get along with each other. But the, the Chinese translations of the New Testament, the new ones they've made, are, are say say that Jesus took up stones. Well, Ken, uh, finish up your point because we have another call. Okay, uh, I'll just mention one other quick scripture. Uh, what about the verse about running the race to receive the prize? Why do we have to do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. The Bible is so full from front to back of um, passages about what we have to do to be saved and the fact that it requires a continual effort on our part with God's help, not just pure human effort by itself, but with God's help, which when we become a Christian we have. Uh, it's just so full from every page that it's very difficult to get away from it. I mean, even you go back to Cain and Abel, I've used before. I know you can talk about the fall corrupting man, and so he can't do anything. Why does God tell Cain in chapter four, "Sin is lying at the door, but you do, but do you rule over it?" In other words, He tells Cain, "Rule over, control your um, impulse to sin." Well, if man was fallen and could not ever control this impulse and was totally hereditarily depraved, Cain was certainly hereditarily depraved. Yet God told him to stop <laughs> sinning. Control Do well and stop sinning. So from the very first pages of the Bible, this doctrine is shown to be uh, not true. It, it just fits a certain uh, theological purpose. And, and really what it is, we say claim before, Martin Luther's doctrine, and it probably isn't the same as what's being taught even by Lutherans today, and John Calvin following that, was more or less a reaction to the extremes of the Catholic Church teaching about indulgences and, and all that kind of thing that led them to these extremes of teaching something like faith only, which the Bible never teaches. Right, and the, one, of the, one of the reasons why I picked the Roman, Romans 11 passage, I just wanted to make this comment, Mike, is that here in this passage, God, he is talking about both the positive and the negative side <coughs> of this. He's talking about the goodness and the severity. And he says on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, meaning he's he's... He's accepted you. He's forgiven your sins if you walk in his path. If you continue. If you continue in this goodness, other, but otherwise you'll be cut off. There's both the positive and, and the, the negative, negative again right there. Uh, yes, go together. And then they go together. God's part and man's part are illustrated right in that passage. God yes. does his part of bringing you back in and saving you, and you do your part by continuing to do what he Right, but the consequences says. are positive if you continue. They're no, negative if you don't. you don't. Right. That's... All right, uh, Ken, I appreciate your call. Uh, we're going to have to run. Maybe we can pick this up some other time because we have another call on the line. Are you there, Jerry? Uh, yes, I am, Mike. Good morning. How are you doing? Good morning, Gary. 
Uh, I was wondering about uh, St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, did he have anything to do with the establishment of the Jesuit order? And I, I understand the Jesuit order is a teaching order. And was there servitude mostly in third world countries or were they mostly based in California? And so basically I'm just asking uh, did did St. Francis have anything to do with the establishment of the Jesuit order? I'd like to listen off there if that'd be okay, Mike. Uh, yes. I'll, let me let me look some of that up. I can give you an answer, but I'm a little bit uh, – I just don't want to say something off the top of my head. Of course, now let me say this before we begin this. I, I, I don't th- call him a saint because I don't think he's really – all Christians are saints. The Bible doesn't picture any group of people being singled out or any, individual. or any individuals being singled out and called saints above all the other Christians. The Bible says all of us are saints in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and some other passages. So I don't believe in the idea of, of sainthood as the Catholic Church defines it because it's not found in the Bible. It was developed centuries and centuries after the church. And so... Um, he, he founded the order of the Friars Minor, it says here, the Women's Order of St. Clair, the Third Order of St. Francis, and the Custody of the Holy Land. And, and so he is a very well-known kind of figure. He was canonized in uh, 1228. So that's who we're talking about here, somebody that had, had been dead a while and was canonized in 1228. But I'm trying to find his connection to being a Jesuit, um, and, and I don't. I believe that's the order he mentioned, isn't it, Gary? Was Saint Francis of Assisi a Jesuit? Yeah, I'm. I'm not. I'm not certain. I believe so, but you can't go by me because I haven't gone basically that much detail into those things. I, I'm. Yes, yeah, so like I say, I, I know that these different orders of the different kinds of friars and monks and all that. I, I, none of those are biblical, either. As such, they developed historically. Uh, I think it says here, of course, in the Catholic Encyclopedia, Jerry. And I'm sorry, I had to look it up without knowing it, but. It says that, that that it was founded by Saint Ignatius of Loyola, the Jesuits were, um, and uh, that's not that's not the original Ignatius of the second first and second centuries or second centuries, but it's uh, an, a guy that came along much later. So they the, the Jesuits were founded. Uh, he was a Spanish soldier who had a religious conversion and so forth. And I'm trying to find a year here for you, 1540. Something like that is when they were finally officially recognized. So it goes back about, what, 600 years, close, 580 years, something like that. So uh, that's, the, that's where the Jesuits came from. And if, I, if, not, if I'm not mistaken, they are one of the more politically liberal and religiously liberal orders of the monks in the Catholic Church. I could be wrong about that. I, without looking it up here, I think the current pope is a Jesuit. And um, they're very strong in South America and so forth because of the Spanish influence, perhaps. But they're one of the more liberal groups. And they've always been had a lot of scholars in them and so forth. But that's what I know. I, I think the important point is, Jerry, that I would make with you is, um, you know, it's interesting you can learn about these historical figures, but always look to the Bible to give you the understanding of wh- how you ought to evaluate them. Paul uh, tells us not to think above men of, uh, think of men above that which is written. And he's speaking of the fact that some were exalting him and, or Peter or some of the other apostles higher than they should have been exalted. And yet that's been the history of 
of churches like the Catholic Church and others where, where certain men become archbishops and cardinals and popes and so forth, and they, they, they are given the names like saint and so forth where others are not. So this is the kind of thing that Jesus would, did, spoke against in Matthew 23, verse 23, where he told them uh, not, not to call any man father on earth and so forth. And and don't exalt one above another when the disciples yeah, the, came the, to talk about that. These organizations and their their founding are not found in the scripture. Uh, basically, I forget where it is, Mike, but I think we're admonished in another place not to go beyond what is written. Yes, and that's the that that's the passage I'm talking. Hang on, I'll find that. I, uh, I'm looking trying to look this up here, but uh, this per- I think I just misquoted the scripture, misquoted a reference, and I want to correct that there in Matthew 23. If I can find it here. Uh, yes, it's Matthew 23, 9, not 23, 23. I thought it was okay. earlier in the chapter. Now then, the verse that I was looking for, um, let me find that. Make you, I think it's in 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's 1 Corinthians. Uh, I'm sorry, folks. I'm trying to figure this out here. All you can uh, hear, all you can hear yeah. here, is keys clicking. Key, was, keys because we're I, both looking. I, I'm trying. I, I th- I'm trying to get the exact reference, and for some reason, uh, it's 1 not. First Corinthians think, four six. Yeah, yeah that believe. sounds right. Think of no man above that which is written. Now, there's different translations of this verse. Well, it says, "Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sake, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one one against another." For who makes you different from another, and what do you have that you do not that you did not receive? Basically, Paul is saying you shouldn't be making distinctions. Now, and the, the King James, this is what I was re- remembering from my childhood. Paul says that he's transferred these things to himself and Apollos, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, nor to be puffed up. So the, uh, now the of men there is in italics, meaning it was inserted by translators to make sense because it's obvious he's talking about them puffing up one person above another. One was puffing up Paulus, one Paul, one Peter. Yeah, he goes on to say that you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. Right. So he's obviously talking about men here. Uh, who and, and so how do we know what we should think of them? We go by what's written. And there's, the Bible says that we're all saints in Christ Jesus that we're, that we're, and so forth. There's not any lifted up. Even Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, taught me this a couple weeks ago. Even Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 called himself a fellow elder with the other elders in local churches and said that, that there is one arch-shepherd, arch-bishop, as it were. In only one. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, 3 and 4. Yes, only him. And that's Christ, he says. So Paul, Peter would not exalt himself up above the other elders in the churches, much less to become the pope. So when we start taking fellow, and, and uh, there's no mention of establishing different orders of different kinds of people that have set themselves up at priests as priests, since we're all a holy priesthood of Christ and so forth. Um, and, of course, you find no reference at all to nuns or anything else in the New Testament. So just so you're aware of that, and, and uh, in answer to Jerry's question, uh, we think it more, uh, more scriptural and more accurate to look at how the Bible views these structures, organizations, people, than to just accept the traditions of history 
as they come down to us. It's okay to learn about them, and, and, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying any, that none of these men had anything useful to say, but I'm saying we certainly shouldn't uh, uh, exalt them above what is actually written in the New Testament. The only comment I would make, Mike, is it seems to me that they, have, they do not have the importance that scriptural descriptions would have of what we should be doing. Right. Uh, you know, it's fine to understand those things. It's fine to to maybe understand that they exist, but Scripture doesn't provide the basis for them. Yes. So they come under a heading, at least at least in that my they're view, just traditions of men. They're mm-hmm. they're they're doctrines of men. Right. Now, uh, John texted in about this situation of the woman caught in adultery. That when Jesus said, "Go and sin no more," I think he's if I'm reading the text correctly. I'm assuming he's meaning what is written in the Torah because the New Testament did not exist yet, unless Paul's referring to another one of his letters. Well, I, of course, I think that that passage is written by John, but I think that's probably correct. And G- Jesus lived and died under the law of Moses as a practicing Jew. His, his law was not in effect. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't introduce elements of his own teaching as it would be later in, in kind of foreshadowing it but jesus told the people more or less to keep the law he didn't tell them to keep the tradition of the elders that's two different things now the 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 pharisees and scribes conflated those two and made them equal their teaching and their elders tradition with the law of moses but jesus had no problem uh, on the sabbath day doing what he thought was right from the law of moses and he rejected their traditions and the washing of hands he wouldn't Remember in Mark 7, he wouldn't make his disciples wash their hands ceremonially, and they tried to make him, force him to do that, and he wouldn't do it. He, because part, the law didn't tell you to wash your hands that way, he wasn't going to enforce it upon them. Part of the problem was they, uh, they were putting their traditions above the law. Right. And so in this case in particular, with specific reference to the woman taking adultery, he, he wasn't telling her to go back and keep the traditions of the, of the elders who had just tried to condemn her for nothing. He was telling her to go back and keep the law of Moses, which, of course, would have forbidden adultery right. completely and, and any, a lot of other sins associated with it. As w- and his teaching, his, his teaching through his apostles taught the same thing. So a lot of cases, the law and the New Testament, they just, they're completely interwoven uh, because the, the same moral law existed because it comes from the nature of God and the nature of creation of man. Adultery is wrong because of the nature in which God made man man and woman in marriage and adultery is obviously wrong from that standpoint so in any event that's um well there are common precepts between the law of christ and the law of moses as as we would describe them Uh, paul talks about that when he says the gentiles when they do what you know basically when they keep the precepts of the law they're a law to themselves Uh, it was you know, the law of Moses was never given to everyone on this earth at any time. It was only given to the Jews. It was only given to right. the Jews. So Gentiles never worked and, uh, had the law used against them as a club by God because they weren't under that law. And, and Jesus lived under the, as a Jew born in Palestine and of Jewish parents under the law of Moses and so forth. And he was taken eighth day and circumcised like every other Jewish male who was going to be faithful to the law. But he came to take away that law and establish his law, the second law according to the book of Hebrews. What he really came to do was to fulfill that first law and fulfill all the ordinances and types and figures in the law 
And so that's how it was taken out of the way, because it was fulfilled. But any, in any event, yes, that's a, I'm just referring there to what, uh, what John said when he texted in here. We appreciate that very much. Um, so, Gary, we have, a, a, you know, five or ten minutes left here, ten, ten minutes or so. Well, uh, I, I had planned to go into. Appreciate, by the way, appreciate Jerry and Ken's calls very much. Right, Thank you, gentlemen. Right. Uh, basically, we, we've talked about confession with the mouth, and one of the next things is uh, I was going to bring up, well, what about what do I have to do? What, what should I do to be saved? And that question is asked in a couple of places in the Scripture. One of them is Acts 2.37. Uh, after Peter preached a sermon telling them who Jesus was and what he came for, uh, basically it says, now when they heard this, talking about Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Right. Now, now that implies, as I would phrase it, uh, conditions, Gary. That's what you're yeah, trying to get at, Yeah, right. This, this is another condition. If you're Just, hearing your preacher teach that salvation is unconditional or implying that. You're hearing incorrect or false teaching because the Bible's clear. Salvation ha has a conditions attached to it. Things that you need not only to believe but to do. And one of the first you don't like to hear that, but that's what the scriptures yeah, say. Yeah, and one of the first few things we mentioned was repentance and confession before men with the mouth. Right. Now, now Peter's going to introduce something else because they ask him, "What shall we do?" Peter said to them, "Repent." There's there one it of, is again. There it is again, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said. Be baptized. Now, that's a passive act thing. But it's a passive thing, by the way. Right. It's something that you allow that you've done to you. you. Yes. Yes. Uh, but basically, now we could, we could diverge off into this, Mike, in which we probably don't have time for, is what's the definition of baptism? What is it? The but mode of it is and all that. Yeah, all of that sort of thing. But, but it's but something an adult does because they, based on their belief, not something a baby has done to them because they're but there's born a, into a family. Yeah, there, there's almost, it's, it's stated as a condition of baptism is repentance. Yes, belief and repentance are conditions of baptism. Yes. I won't baptize anyone who I don't think has, is a believer and will, will willing, openly confess that and has repented of the sins that they've committed and going to try to, to live right according to the Bible. I won't baptize them. It doesn't make me special. It just makes, means that's what the Bible says. But one of the things I wanted to point out and discuss maybe a little bit more is what, what happened? What does God, now we said, what does God do when you believe? What does God do when you're baptized? And that's the point that I think is, is, is important for us to understand because Peter says it's for the remission of sins. What's the, what's the implication of that? God forgives your sins when you're baptized. Now, part of what you're seeing here then, Gary, for people to catch the drift of this, as used in other passages, is we said that a, a, a general statement can't necessarily contradict or exclude a more specific one in the context. But belief or believing is a general and often used as a general name for all of this because in the bible way of using the word believe and faith in the old and new testaments faith always was accompanied by obedience saving faith always included obedience, obedience. hearing included obedience in the old into the to, in the old law so when he says believe with all your heart and you'll be saved you and your house act 1631 what we find happening immediately after that is what they were baptized because 
the belief was a general word that included all of that. And you're just kind of now breaking out what's included in the belief and, 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 and we're, the saving we're, belief. Yeah, the saving my faith. plan was to get to yes. there after we discussed some of the things about, you know, going back to this idea that it's you do something and then God does something. And then you do something else and God does something else again. It, it's, it's, it's what God wants to see. This is also set up in command form. Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized. That, that is a command of sorts. Well, it is a command. It's a it, statement it's, of what you have to do. It's a definition it's conditions. Of, or conditions. What, what should I do to be saved? Well, here are the conditions. Right. Here they are. He Men and brethren, what shall we do? Here's what you do. This now, is the command. What you find there is these people already were believers because they, they were saying we, we, they heard that Jesus was the Christ. Now they want to know what to do about that. So it's obvious from the context these were believers. And he told these people that believed that Jesus was God's son to repent and be baptized. So it goes right there with it. Right. Exactly. Now, some people will say, and I've heard this said, you're baptized because your sins were already forgiven. No, That's not what this says. Scriptures do not say that. No. Well, I would point to Acts that, that, 20. What's the condition in Acts 22, beginning in verse 14, where we're talking about Paul is being talked to by Ananias, and, and Paul is being told basically what he's what God's chosen him to do. But then he's told in verse 16, after he's told what he should be doing, he's told something else specifically, just like Peter said in Acts chapter 2. He says, and now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. There is another implication that Paul's sins are forgiven upon his baptism. Exactly. Calling upon the name of the Lord. Now that's an interesting phrase, and we could chase a rabbit, but we're kind of running out of time. Call, why do you call upon the name of the Lord? Well, how do you call? Him? Why how, and how? Because why and you believe how? Him. You don't call if you don't believe it. But what this says is, this is how you call upon the name right. of the Lord. Right. You call upon the name of the Lord by being baptized. Well, the other, that's correct. And the other thing is, Jesus says in Matthew, in, in Mark sixteen sixteen, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now, what people but he do, that believeth not is condemned did, already. Is there's condemned the, already. That's right, because he doesn't believe. So, he that believeth and is baptized. Now, there's a case where he, he separates the two to some degree. But here's, what, here's what's taught by, you know, Baptist Church, other, other Protestants today. He that believeth shall be saved, and then he can be baptized. Now, that's not, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, he that... He, Believe and be baptized, and then salvation comes. Modern Protestants who believe in faith only say, uh, believe and you'll be saved, and then you'll be baptized. And so some of you listening, you say, well, I've been baptized. Well, you were baptized not for salvation. You were baptized to make you a member of that church or for some other reason as a sign or whatever it may be. But that's not what the scriptures say to do. And so I'm going to urge you to think carefully about that, whether you've done what God says. Well, I think it's clear from uh, Acts chapter 2 and 38 and from uh, basically Acts 22 and 16 that baptism is the point at which God God forgives your sins. You don't do that. God does that. That's right. And I would ask those who say that, well, if I'm saved upon mental acknowledgement or belief, I'm, I'm saved without with sins already still attributed to me. Is that the case that we see? Well, I don't know if you're going here, Gary. He said in, in, in Romans six two, he says, 
Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, that therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Well, that was my next verse. Oh, I'm sorry, Gary. I, <laughs> that's a, that's I, okay. I see the logic no, of where you're going no, with no, this. That, that, that it's was my obvious next what verse. he's telling you, the purpose of what it is, is to be united with his death, and that's where the salvation occurs, in the blood, in the death. Right. And, and basically... You know, he says in, in Colossians chapter 2, we're buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him having forgiven all your trespasses. Right there. So the faith is in the work. The, the, the working is, uh, is the showing faith, oh, excuse me, showing faith in God's work. Exactly. Not your work. <laughs> exactly. Baptism is not a work of man. It's a work of God. It's the thing that God wants to see your faith here in He's that. He's the one doing the work, exactly. not you. And, and I, I guess we're about, about out of time. About two minutes left here. So. But, you know, we, we could go on with Ephesians 5, uh, talking about the church. He says that he might cleanse, he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. What is that? Mm-hmm. It's another. Uh, our basically in Titus, he said he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. All of these are references to how we're saved. Now, I left out 1 Peter 3.21, and I'm, I'm going to leave that to our, Do another, our listeners. 1 Peter 3.21, okay. Yeah, I'm going to leave that to our listeners to go look that up. I, re- I suggest you read carefully the context of 1 Peter 3.21. Appreciate it, Gary, very much. Appreciate our callers. Let me give you some information I meant to do as we close out this morning uh, along the way, and I forgot. You, you can... Not only can you text the show at 772-260-6120 or 6220, you can email us at Just Christians, but you can also listen live on the Internet at Just Christian, I mean at WPSL.com. Hit the Listen Live button, and you'll be taken to this broadcast live on the air. You can, your friends can do this all over the country, all over the world, I suppose. You can even listen on TuneIn Radio and, and uh that app on your phone or Alexa devices or Google Chrome. You can listen through WPSL there when we're on the air. And then if you can't listen then, tell your friends they can get the podcast. All they have to do is go to wearejustchristians.com, that website, wearejustchristians.com. You'll find going to this radio show. You'll find recordings uh, of all the sermons, and you can find out about the church. So come and be with us, 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard here in Port St. Lucie. We'd be glad to have you. And we appreciate it. Tune in again next week, and may God bless you. You've been listening to We Are Just Christians, live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie on WPSL Port St. Lucie.